Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard. I am, of course, Ryan Howard, and you will notice my lack of a usual bombastic, silly, fun intro. Uh, that is because I would like to get right to the heart of the matter. Today, uh, we have none other than the legendary Larry Elmore on the podcast today. I am extremely excited for what Larry has to say. It was a great interview. He's full of great stories about what it was like to be working at TSR in the early days and how that culture kind of changed as as the business grew and expanded. Lots of cool stuff to say about just the, the practice of oil painting itself. Uh, there's all kinds of cool stuff in here. If you're into D&D, if you're into art, anything this is a great interview and it's a long one and i don't want to take up too much time just rambling i know you guys want to hear elmore so i'm going to get to it a few quick plugs first of all if you like the show which can be found on anchor it can also be found on apple Podcasts, google podcast spotify stitcher pocket cast podcast republic or wherever you listen to podcasts if you like the show Please give me a five-star rating or a one-star rating if you don't like the show. Leave a little review on the podcatcher of your choice. I'd like to get the audience to expand. I want to see more and more people coming in. And the best way to do that, the best way to get recommended to people, is by having ratings and reviews on my show. If you want to interact with me on social media in any way, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram, where I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. Twitter is mostly where I post stuff about the episode. If people want to interact with me on Twitter, I can I can certainly become more active on there. And then Instagram is largely for my mini painting, which if you are interested in seeing kind of my, my skill with a brush, as it were, as limited as it is, uh, you can see it on Instagram. And uh, just a couple quick plugs for our guest today, because we didn't get to it at the end. Uh, if you want to buy prints or anything from Larry, uh, go to LarryElmore.com to do so. He has a store there. There's all kinds of prints of all the, the cool paintings that he's done over the years. I believe they have a merchandising deal with uh, one shop or another. You can find information on that on his website. And of course, I want to shout out uh, his next convention appearance as of the time of this recording he will be at Dragon Con. That is next weekend. I am very jealous of all you people going, even though it's like 100,000 people now, which is insane, and I don't know how I'd be able to survive that. For those of you going to Dragon Con, stop by Larry's booth, say hi, say you listen to Rollin' Bones, tell him you love the interview, and buy something from him. Give this man your business, because he's great. He was gracious enough to come on the show. He gave me an hour plus of his time. I don't want to waste any more time. No rant this weekend. Just getting right to the heart of the matter, ladies and gentlemen, Larry Elmore on Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, ladies and gentlemen, tonight on the show, I have a man who needs no introduction. He's probably the reason why you picked up your first D&D book, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Larry Elmore. That's a pretty good introduction. Hello. <laughs> glad to be here. <laughs> well, Larry, we are absolutely glad to have you on the show, and I just want to jump straight into questions because okay. I've got a lot of them. <laughs> well, I need to say something first. 
uh, I am a Southern person. So a lot of people are always surprised that I have this Southern accent and they ask me, where am I from? Because I think a lot of people thought as an illustrator or something, you can't be from Kentucky or the South, you know. <laughs> Especially when I travel to Europe, they're like, I shouldn't have an accent. You know, I should be like the TV people. I'm like, no, I'm a Southern boy and, I, and I'm proud of my heritage, so I've never tried never put forth a conscious effort to get rid of my accent. So I just got to remember to enunciate well for you mm-hmm. <laughs> and not get into Southern slang. Okay, mm-hmm. go ahead. What's yeah, your first question? Well, just so you know, you're on here with another Southerner, so there's there's no need to apologize okay, for that. Good, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> All right, so uh, first and foremost, this is a question that I ask everyone who comes on the show and the answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Larry, if you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? <laughs> anything on a T-shirt? Uh, Lord. Okay. Uh, the first thing that pops to my mind, this is the first thing that pops to my mind, would be something like this. Uh, if you want to be successful on anything, prepare for a life of hard work. That's about it. Gotcha. It's not real catchy, but it's, I think it's a truth, you know. Mm, absolutely. I think if ever, any of the arts, well, you know, I refer to the arts, music, writing, anything like that, acting, uh, singing, any of the arts, there's a lot of people into it, and everybody wants to do that. And, uh, and so there's a lot of competition, uh, especially, like I said, in the arts, but also in every other field. So if you want to be really successful, uh, you don't do it halfway, and you don't do your best. You got to do better than your best. <laughs> you got to put more hours than I thought you would. You got to mm-hmm. always be obsessed by something, and then you, you're already ahead of the crowd because you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, so that puts you a little bit ahead. Being crazy puts you a little bit ahead of the game. <laughs> Because you will go the extra mile all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when when uh, Thomas Edison said that uh, it's inspiration and perspiration, I think he forgot the uh, the insanity in that equation as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, because people look at me sometimes. I don't know. A lot of people, now, people has been around art some, like my kind of art, like painting. And I still paint traditionally. I don't, I don't do... Um, digital art because that takes the challenge out for me. The challenge is actually conceiving an idea on your brain and then with your hands putting that down on something, on a piece of board that's visual to you see. That's the challenge for me. But I think a lot of people think painting is just like a, you can think of other things and be doing other things and your hands just paint for you. That's not how it goes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You're you're constantly making decisions, constantly making decisions, almost with every breaststroke. And um, and when people say, "Well, how long do you work on that painting?" and I guess they expect you to see three or four hours, and I say, "Well, this big painting here took me two months." And or and when you say, "I did one in, in two weeks," an oil painting from beginning to finish in two weeks, they're like, "Oh, they saw sort of like is that they don't know if that's fast or slow." Well, that's actually pretty fast to do a decent painting in two weeks from nothing to a finished painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I had to do most of the time. But the, what we didn't say a lot of artists that was doing that, that was at, when everybody was painting with brushes, paint, is that 
that wasn't two weeks of eight-hour days. That was two weeks of 16-hour days and weekends, too, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting a lot of sleep. You're burning yourself out. I stayed. I cut myself going on caffeine, nicotine, and junk food. I don't know why. I'm not dead yet. And uh, I stopped that, though. <laughs> I still do a lot of caffeine. <laughs> and um, and and I smoke a cigar once in a while, so a little bit of nicotine. But uh, I don't. I I just don't put the sixteen hours a day or eighteen or fourteen hours a day in like I used to. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm getting old, so a good solid hour a day. I'm pretty tired at the end of the day, so. I've slowed down a little bit. Larry, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you are a Kentucky boy, born and raised. And so my first question for you, how does a boy growing up in Kentucky in the 1950s start painting swords, dragons, and elves? (laughs) Well, that's a pretty good question. I call it adventure art. Mm -hmm. I didn't know, uh, I guess the core of me, I mean, here, I'm 71 years old, and this uh, Sunday, this past Sunday, I went out, on quads, this is a four-wheel racing type four-wheelers, you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Uh, that, that climbs hills and cliffs and everything. And and uh, as a friend of mine, he's a doctor, and he's, my, well, he's a few months younger than me, and I'm 71 years old. And we rode places. I didn't dream a mountain goat could go, but I had ridden trail bikes when I was younger and a lot of stuff. It's always been that excitement that, that I I craved. I always liked it, and it's funny you said that. I was, I was out there on a trail, probably the oldest guy out there with all these other people. But I'm hanging in there and riding like a fool, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I was a kid, it was that excitement, that that uh, risk or danger, excitement. And uh, and so I played in the woods all the time. Uh, me and my cousins and and uh, we just grew up in the woods in a way, and and we climbed cliffs. You know, big ones with no ropes, no anything. You just climb them, and you uh, you just do exciting and dangerous things. And and uh, and so when I finally went to college, uh, the, I guess in my first year of college, so someone said, "Okay, a teacher, a professor said, uh, an instructor said, okay, what kind of art do you want to go into?" He's asking all these people, and I didn't know any types of art. Uh, just a little Kentucky boy, and uh, my school didn't even teach art my high school except and so I said uh, I don't know somebody's one of the other students say well abstract expressionist and someone said I really like cubism and I'm like I don't want to do that crap and so when they got to me he said what do you want to do I said uh, adventure art and they're like well like what and I said I don't know just adventure things and uh, they looked at me and said like you want to be an illustrator a cheap commercial illustrator and I said well, I guess I do. <laughs> and, and, and so I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first couple of years of, of, of college, I was treated pretty bad. Uh, not really bad, but the, the, the teachers was always looking at me and shaking their head because I continued doing what I wanted to do. By the time I was a junior, they decided I was going to be good at whatever I was doing. And they got behind me, and I became one of their top ten artists and. uh and they were giving me, uh, I was going to get a scholarship uh, to get a master's degree at Pratt in New York, a scholarship and a fellowship. And, uh, and But I knew that I was getting out of college at Christmas, and the draft board had already told me I'd be drafted. Vietnam was going on. She said I'd be drafted in January. So, 
yeah, I got out in December, and 30 days later, I was in the Army. <laughs> so mm-hmm. my, my, uh, my, graduate, my, my master's degree didn't pan out, but that's okay. Everything else worked out. I just kept doing my adventure. But while I was at college, though, about my second year in school, I saw a book cover at a bookstore, and it freaked me out. It was I got angry because here's some dude doing exactly what I wanted to do, and he was painting barbarians. And I hadn't thought about painting that yet, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I painted some wizardy things or surrealistic type things or did drawings of them. But then when I saw the first Frazetta cover, that was who the dude was, I got, like, well, I might as well quit. I, <laughs> this guy's doing it, doing it better than I ever dreamed I could. And I can't copy him. And, um, but yeah, that first cover of the first colon cover that came out blew my socks off. And I thought, there it is. There it is. That, that's my adventure. Because I'd already been doing research on my own on Viking longships. And, um, I was looking for, I said, I don't, I don't know what it was about my pulling, you might say. I don't want to get weird, but it's almost like a spiritual pulling or something drawn me. I, I like the Vikings and I'd seen some, um, I saw a painting, of an original piece of art of a Viking longship at sea in a rich man's office when I was in, uh, like, second year high school. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so I started trying to read anything about Vikings. So once I started reading more about Vikings, I thought, well, this is cool, but that's not, that's not satisfying that yearn inside me. And I kept looking at the maps of Europe. I'm like, somebody lived in Germany and France and England. Scotland, Ireland. I mean, there's Stonehenge in England. I mean, who was that? Because history didn't teach us that. History was just covering, you know, like the the Greeks, uh, Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, going on up that way. And uh, so I finally found a history book. I was going to the library a lot at night and looking up, just getting history books, trying to find out what is it I'm trying to find. And I, I saw a map that showed that part of Europe as battle, battle axe cultures. Okay, well, who are they? And finally, I found a word that said Celts. So I started saying the Celts, and it felt like I found home. And um, then later on, I was weird. This was only about a year ago. Uh, my daughter got me that genetic test, mm-hmm. and my bloodline is is about 12% Scandinavian. Most of it is English, Irish, Scottish. <laughs> so that's pretty much Celtic. <laughs> yep. Like, wow, that's weird, you know. Um <laughs> And that, this desire, this yearning started about the time I was, oh, in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, when I found the, the, Kel- uh, the Vikings, but then after I studied them when I was at the college, and I thought, that's not them. I mean, I like them, and I, I, I was wanting to paint them, and the, you couldn't find much reference material back then. That's visual, hardly. It just wasn't popular. Uh, and so it was really hard to see. Now, now you can go to a not just a bookstore, but online and find everything. But then you couldn't, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was from a small town. They didn't really have a bookstore, you know. Uh, not really. Drugstores mm-hmm. sell a few magazines, and that was it. And gotcha. So there was no way to me to get any visual ideas. So uh, I started looking for anything Frazetta did, and I didn't want to copy him, though. But then with me studying and uh, books and trying to figure out who, what these people look like, I saw their design work. You could see they would always show Celtic design stuff. And uh, Viking and Celtic design favor each other a lot in many ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
But anyway, that was that was. It's like I found home. I knew I wanted to paint that kind of stuff from that point on. And uh, and then as I kept doing it, just uh, fantasy in general. And I also liked science fiction too at the time because that presented sort of a risk thing in there. If he was if he was going to go into space, that was a big adventure. I was you know exciting. Anything seemed exciting. That's what I wanted to illustrate. And also, I like telling stories, so I'd like to always try to, if possible, to get a piece of a story in a painting. So you'd look at it and like, ah, I could build a story around this, you know. What's going on? Because that's what I did with any of Frazetta's piece. I look at it and like, there's a story here. Even without reading a book, if it was a book cover, just, just to, you'd make up your own story just looking at the painting itself. It was inspiring. So that's sort of the direction I went in starting, starting a long time ago. Uh, now you you've mentioned Frazetta several times, and yeah, everyone loves Frazetta. Everyone who's listening to this podcast loves Frazetta. Yeah, and at that same time, there was Jeff Jones and Bernie Wrightson was starting again when I got out of the army. I you know, run into those guys. I mean, mm-hmm. but I was looking at Jeff Jones covers while I was still in college, and uh, Kaluta. And, uh, then a book came out in the studio about that, uh, but I was always sort of following these artists. And it was hard to find their art. It appeared in different things. I, I could cut some of Bernie Wrights and, and uh, Jeff Jones stuff sometimes. And uh, I think National Lampoon at one time was running Jeff Jones' work in the back, the strip called Idol. And mm-hmm. um, I, you're just searching for anything that was fantasy. And there just wasn't hardly anything that was in the early 60s and early 70s. When I got out of the Army in 73, then the Boris Vallejo had hit the scene. And a few others, and I'm like, wow, man. And so I, when I got an army, I got a job at Fort Knox, which is close by me, about 50 miles away, and I was commuting. And I got a job as an illustrator there. I was civil service. I was drawing tanks and helicopters and war stuff because Vietnam was still going on when I got on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, it was reading on a manual. So it was still, it was, that was sort of exciting. But then uh, I, I started seeing these other artists, and I was like, man, I got to if I only do this kind of art for a living, I started sending uh, friends of mine twice and resumes of mine into different places. I didn't do it. I didn't think I was good enough. And I got work for National Lampoon. Back then, it was really hot magazine. I think both Frazetta and Boris had actually done covers for them. And, um, and, uh, and then I got a back cover of Heavy Metal, and, uh, and then I got a few little things inside Heavy Metal. And uh, I thought, well, I'm on my way. And then a friend of mine sent my samples into TSR. And uh, I, kn- I knew what Dungeons and Dragons was. I'd never played it, but I knew that the game was popular. And, and uh, I'd heard about it. Of course, you heard negative stuff about it. Like, if you play this game, you're going to hell. You know, so that, mm-hmm. well, that's like anything else exciting, you know, <laughs> to me. It's like, well, if you climb cliffs with no ropes, swing off of great vines and jump on the trees, which we did, then playing this game, sure, it can't be any more dangerous than that. <laughs> <laughs> I played a little bit before, and that's when uh, the guy that introduced me to the game sent my samples to TSR, and they wanted to hire me. And it, but three times I told them no, and finally the, the president of the company, uh, is Brian Bloom, or Kevin Bloom, uh, the oldest of the Blue Brothers, uh, came to my house and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And so I told him, you just bought yourself an artist. <laughs> so my wife and everything moved to Wisconsin. And that was the smartest thing I ever did. I mean, I turned out three times. Uh, yeah, three times. And uh, and then finally when I said yes, that was the smartest yes I ever said in my life. Uh, thank God I did. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Now you you mentioned Bernie Wrightson. So before we get to yeah. uh, before we get to TSR, um, yeah. was there ever any thought in your mind that you might end up doing comics for a living? No. Yes. No. Not at that time. No. I followed his. I liked his ink work. Mm-hmm. Just loved the way he inked. But I wasn't doing ink work then. I was in college. I was painting. You know. And uh, I think we had one class. One of the drawing class classes spent two weeks on inking, and they said bring some Indian ink and a on water and a jar to put water in and some brushes and so what we did we just slapped on washes and around and that was about a week or two and that was it that's all the ink training i had and uh but i still like bernie Wrightson's inking and jeff jones's ink the strip idol uh and i was looking at any good thing ba- well then these creepy and airy started come out and then vampire vampirella came out i had at one time i had every issue of vampirella because it was a black and white magazine, and you can see inking. And at that time, I just started working at Fort Knox, and everything we did there was ink. And mm-hmm. I didn't really have an ink technique, and so I started studying any good inkings I could I could see. Uh, and uh, and I really fell back on, on and then the old comic artist and started discovering. I discovered Hal Foster in Pennsylvania. Bought every kind of magazine or book that was put out about them I could get, and there wasn't much. It was like two books, maybe over the period of time that uh, that you could get your hands on. And uh, I studied the inking styles, and uh, uh, and, I, and then I started inking with a brush. At first, I was inking at every mechanical pen point you could have from a triple zero to six, just about, and I inked with those. But they didn't give you those flowing lines. And once I start inking with a brush, it's like, yeah, that's you can in one line you can put weight in it and, and create shadow and in a, a single line. And they were doing that, you know, by getting line thin and thick in one pull, one stroke. It's like, man. And by the time I did go to work at TSR, I'd done so much inking, I could ink. Uh, my inking was really the best that ever it was in my life then. Because with inking, if you don't do it all the time, you can get rusty on it, you know, because it takes a, a fine touch. A light hand. I'd say ink without mistakes. And uh, I was always proud when I finished the beginning drawing and there was no mistakes. I don't think I could do it now. I know I couldn't. I'd make mistakes. I don't know. I take that back. I did do a big ink wash drawing for a commission piece about a year ago. And it was 18 by 24. And I'm like, I haven't done a big ink wash drawing since my days at TSR. Like, what am I? Can I pull this off? So I, and I can't make a mistake. This guy was buying the original. I couldn't have white out on my original. <laughs> <laughs> and so I held my breath a lot and took my time, and I did it without a mistake. And I was, I was more proud of that than doing a big oil, oil painting. You know, yeah, inking was it's it's an art in itself, and I still like doing it. I don't know if there's that much of a market now for it. Um, because now everybody inks with a computer, you undo, you can make stroke after stroke, go back and go back. When you're really inking, <laughs> you one thing at a line, your brush quiver too much, anything. Mm-hmm. It's a mistake, and you can't erase it. You can't, only can cover it with whiteout, and whiteout doesn't match the white of your paper. I promise you, it never does. It's always whiter. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, some, some drawings back then, uh, uh, especially when I was freelance and I had to do some ink drawings and stuff. And um, I would have a big drawing done and there'd be one little mistake in it. This one line went too far. It would be bothering me. And, and so I would sit there and I'd get my white out. I'd touch my white out to the paper and it was always three shades wider. So it'd stick out like a sore thumb. 
even though your paper looked white, the white out was whiter. And so I would dip my my brush in my coffee. I always had black coffee drink constantly, and I would keep dropping that in my little pile of white out until I get it the right color of the paper. Then I could touch it up, and you couldn't see it. You know, probably years later you could, but at that time, for at least two or three years, you couldn't see that tiny, tiny piece of white out on there. But it bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I already see some crazy things. Now that's that's brought up another question that I, I probably yeah. should have asked earlier. Um, yeah. You mentioned kind of teaching yourself how to ink using kind of the yeah. references of the, the the comics that you had. Yeah. Was that how yeah. you learned most of your art skills? Was by trial and error and teaching yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, here's the thing, and and I can tell you a story. You have to remind me is about Keith, Jeff, Keith Parsons, Jeff. Uh, easily and uh, Clyde Caldwell and myself while we was all working it. Mm-hmm. But I'll step back. When you had a fine arts training at the time I went to college in the, in the 60s, and this carried on into the 70s, modern art was at its peak sort of in America at that time. Everything, you know, all the big money people in New York, the Rockefellers and everything else, was buying modern art. As crazy it could get, the more they'd buy it. And so... No one in college, even though we saw some of our instructors painting pretty good, but if you painted something realistic at all, you got bitched at. I mean, they didn't want it. You should be expressing your inner feelings, not painting, not being an illustrator. Being an illustrator was just a cheap occupation. It's not art. And I thought, well, that's what I want to be. I'd rather be an illustrator. If I got to paint, to me, it's like I was expressing myself. Adventure was a core of my being. It was pushing your physical self to you until you scared the crap out of yourself and you you felt alive. You, you know, I, I don't know. It's just that was always been in me. And uh, and so I wanted to do things where there was adventure, like exploring, uh, anything like that. But they didn't teach you anything. And so when I when me learning to paint, I had to just look at other art and uh, some of, when I was in college, I go to the library. I finally discovered the NC Wyatt, Howard Pyle, uh, all these guys. Your Brandywine School of Artists, and I'm like, oh my god, they were actually illustrators, you know. Even Remington and Russell, I'm looking at their stuff. Oh my god, here these guys are accepted as artists. But if I did something like that, I'm doing a cheap illustrator. I'm being a cheap illustrator. But those guys were illustrators also. And some of them were never accepted by the, the, the art world, in quotation marks. But they did later. Uh, I know in, while I was in college, one professor asked one time, he was asking everyone, this is like my first year, uh, who are your two favorite artists? as my second year. And this is a different, this is a painting class. Who are your two favorite painters? Well, I didn't know that many yet. And uh, so they was asking students, they was given names of probably modern artist that was living in New York at the time because the instructor loved those answers. And a lot of these kids came from New York, New Jersey. They was, you know, more in the arts. You know, I'm I'm a rural country boy, and I couldn't name him. Uh, I could think of uh, Leonardo Vinci and Rembrandt and a few like that, but I I know he didn't want that answer. And so he got to me, and I'm like, "Uh, Norman Rockwell and Frank Frazetta. (laughs) And, (laughs) And they... They didn't know who in the hell Frank Frazetta was, 
and with no rolling around, they all laughed. The teacher laughed at me. The students laughed at me. And I, I didn't care. I mean, I felt I was embarrassed, but I didn't care. Now, today, I saw something recently. A lot of the art that was being purchased at 200000 a pop back in the 60s, they can't really give it away. But Norman Rockwell's art sells for millions. Frank Fazetta's art sells for millions, you know? Mm-hmm. So in the end, I think, okay, who was right? You know, if you want to follow the leader and and you know, they'll push modern art to everything you can possibly conceive of. In the 60s, they did. I mean, it got to, to the point of just a white canvas, gesso, that's it. That was a statement. And you can sell out white white painting, white gesso board or, or stretch canvas for hundreds of thousand dollars if your philosophy sounded right. And it's like, well, what are they going to do next? You know, and Warhol came out with his soup cans and his philosophies. You know, people was eating it up. I'm like, well, if he likes doing that, that's his thing. But they weren't teaching you to, to really find yourself. It was teaching you to follow the stuff that was being done. And I didn't want to follow anybody's art. I just wanted to do my own thing, whatever it was. I didn't know what it was yet. I just knew it was adventure. And then finally it turned into fantasy because I was doing my adventure art, which I really got sort of found on for doing that. And I was doing surrealism. I discovered Picasso. And it's like, I loved his work. And I love that surrealism. It was it was strange and different to me, like a dream. And so I was doing a lot of surrealism. And my teachers loved the surrealism. I was they like, oh, my God, how do you think that way? It's like, well, it's just adventure. <laughs> it's just distorting things a little bit, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but I didn't, uh, you know, I, I, but like I said, when I saw Frazetta's and Jones and these guys starting to do those book covers and discovered NCY, and, and all these other older illustrators, it's like, oh my God, that's what I want to do, you know. Mm. Uh, and and their work was fantasy uh, to a degree. So some of the Treasure Island illustrations that N.C. White did, uh, original Treasure Island paintings, are beautiful. I mean, the power and strength. Uh, you know, not too many artists could capture that. I can't do it, but they could. So it's. Um, I guess I was just too too hard headed to give up. <laughs> I just kept going. As I got better, I loved it because I could start painting women better. Like, oh my God, <laughs> I could paint a really pretty woman now. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, when I was younger and turning into a teenager, I was drawing a lot of girls. I couldn't draw them that well. I was practicing to drawing girls. And then as I got better and painting, I'm like, oh man, I could do some pretty women. You know, like, I started doing barbarian women. You know, like, this is so cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know that kind of stuff. Uh, I did a lot of drawings back in that time. Uh, the hot rods were really popular. I loved hot rods. I still got some today. And uh, really powerful cars. And that was back when the, the Big Daddy Roth and Rat Fink and all that kind of craze was going on in the 60s. You, you draw these cars with the back tires so huge and the front wheels off the ground and the monster hand coming out of the roof, shifting the gears, all that stuff. I did hmm. tons of those kind of drawings. It was exciting. It was like power or something. I don't know what it was. Now, uh, I've, uh, talked to, I've talked to a few more illustrators that did the same thing. Oh, let me cover one more thing. You asked about painting and learning in college. But Keith, myself, and, and Clyde, we were mm-hmm. all, we just hired Clyde. He hadn't been working there very long. He was the last, no, we just hired Keith. Keith was the last one. And we was all sitting there painting one day, and we got talking about our medium. You know, what do you use as a medium for your oil painting? And I said, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. So I used thinner. And a little bit of linseed oil, I don't know. Clyde said, well, I use varnish. 
And Jill said, I'm like, Larry, I just sort of mix up everything. He's a lot of thinner. And Keith, he, he didn't know. And, and all of us had had degrees in art. <laughs> and none of us, not one teacher told us how to mix a medium or what it was for. I mean, oil painting, you think it's passed now with all digital stuff. It was passed back then. If you're going to be a modern artist, you didn't know, have to know about actual really painting, real real paintings like old masters did. And so we didn't know. And artists are notoriously bad for reading how to paint books. <laughs> <laughs> You're too busy trying to do it and reading about it. So we mm -hmm. were sitting there talking. We found that none of us really knew. We didn't know that you use oil and you use thinner, but we didn't know how to use it. And so Keith said, I think I've got a book at home that talks about that. So he was the youngest. He was only like 21. We, so we, we nominated him to be the one to read the book that night, you know. <laughs> so the next day he came in, he said, oh, man, my eyes have been opened. He said, uh, uh, oh, God, you're not going to believe this. And he told us what linseed oil does and what dinner does and, and the nurse dryers. And once he explained to us, he drew us a little, little illustration that was in his book, how actually linseed oil floats the pigment in the, in the paint and, and a thinner or turpentine dissolves the, the pigments in the paint, dissolves the paint. And this kind of stuff, we're like, holy cow. Why didn't somebody out of four and a half years of college, because I changed from, um, I went into education, I went to change the BFA, so I had to go an extra semester. But no one, not one painting teacher told me that. Or showed me, I didn't know. And so mm -hmm. once, before I was discovered that, we're like, man, we're downtown now. We can really <laughs> paint the things we wanted to paint. <laughs> you know, it's, that sounds stupid, but it was true. Mm -hmm. The kids that went to, at, during the period, they went to like one of these, uh, like the uh, Chicago, uh, what is that, uh, 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 School of Institute, Institute of Art, uh, mm -hmm. things like that. They had actual painters really teach them how to paint. I mean, real good professional painters and stuff. You couldn't go to the school. They're too expensive. Uh, there's no way I could go to school. I, I went to Bilo university on loans and grants that was it i had to pay it all back because i could have gone so at that time if you went to university you didn't get to learn how to paint 90 percent of the time it's a weird time <laughs> mm -hmm. gotcha so kind of getting back to uh what you were saying about uh rejecting tsr three times what were your reservations yeah. about working with with tsr well at first i was so excited and i thought i could freelance for them because i had like I said, I was at Fort Knox. I was at GS9. This is 1981. I was making 20000 a year. That was good money. I'd bought a brand new home. My wife was working for City Hall in our little town, and she made about twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand 14000 like that a year, and that was good money. So between us, both, we was making 30 thousand a year in 1981, mm -hmm. 79, 80, 81. And, and we were doing good. And, and then they went to Maluto, Wisconsin, all I heard about that place was it was cold as, as Arctic Circle and everything else. Like, I don't know if I want to go up there, you know. And um, and so so they wanted to fly me up there, me and my wife, and check it out. So we did. So we go up there and look at everything, and, and they took us. TSI wasn't in one building. It was scattered all over Lake Geneva and just different little places. So they take us from one building to another and to another. And everybody in there was like kids, 
I was 31 <laughs> years old at that time. I was mm -hmm. young, but I was older than almost everybody there. It was only three or four people older than me that I saw. Gary was one of them, and I think uh, Will Niebling was one, and there was two or three of the uh, people that helped found the company, and the Blooms, uh, I think there was one of the Blooms that was my age or a little, or maybe a year older, I don't know. But everybody was young, and it was crazy, and, uh, and it was pretty wide open. There was no hardly any rules or anything, and I'm like, what, how can this place continue on? I mean, I'd been in the Army, and I was working civil service, there was rules, there was this, there was that, and there was an engine that, that ran everything. TSR seemed like chaos, and uh, my wife and I come home and talk about it, and, uh, and uh, we said no, but then that's when the next time he come down and uh, just made me a financial offer, I'd be stupid to refuse. And they even bought and sold my house for me, doubled our salaries. And I go, God, I'll do this no matter what for at least a few years. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so that's what I decided to come. And I knew Z&D was growing in popularity. But at that time, in 81, not too many things had gone that viral in the world or gone that crazy. Star Wars was one. Mm -hmm. um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, The Alien. They just went crazy movies, and uh, that's the only thing that was remotely related to the fantasy world that had made that kind of money. Mm -hmm. And I and I saw all those movies, the first opening in the theater, the opening day. We, me and some other illustrators at Port Knox, we took off from work and drove to Louisville and was, was the only ones in the theater just about for the first showing during the day. You know? <laughs> and uh, and um, so... I got to thinking though, and he kept up with this kind of money. I thought they got—they make a lot of money, and this D and D could end up going big. I didn't think it'd go as big as Star Wars or something, but I had no clue. And you know, I didn't have a clue how big it was probably until four or five years ago. I mean, I've been to going to conventions since oh, thirty years of conventions and meeting people, mm -hmm. but. It never dawned on me that until I started meeting people from Russia, from Israel, from I don't know Australia, from places all over that played D and D. All that while I was doing the covers, they were playing all mm -hmm. over the world. And just the last few years, I just realized I mean that game went viral worldwide, and millions of kids played it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we realized. I don't think any of us artists at that time truly realized how far it was going, and I mean how wide it was spread. We knew some people in Wisconsin played the game. <laughs> we knew some people around <laughs> Chicago played the game. At that time, I didn't know two or three people in Kentucky that even read fantasy. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. So, but we figured a few people would play to keep the money flowing, but we didn't, we didn't realize how big it was. Uh, yeah. I think the first, first time it hit me, I think I was going to a convention in Europe. I was in France, I think, or Italy. And I saw Dragonlance on a shelf with my cover on them. Wow, they have it over here. <laughs> that had really entered my mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was very lucky, very lucky. But mm -hmm. you do make your own luck, too. There's a percentage of that. You've got to take advantage of a situation. You've got to work hard. And if you're doing something you love, you'll do it better. You need to love what you're doing. And I did. Not just painting. I love fantasy stuff. Using your imagination. So when you first got to TSR, who were you reporting to as far as your your work was concerned? Who who had the final say in what was going on the cover? Well, 
well, nobody was clear exactly. Jim Roslaw <laughs> was our art director, and he was a great guy and a very good. He got fired later on, about three years later, and I, I never got over that. The guy won awards of all types, and he continued to win awards for design, and uh, he, he, he was great. And he was a good person. We all loved him. And he was very lenient. You know, we'd start doing a drawing, and he'd look at it. If he liked it, he'd say, yeah, do it. If he had a little something to say, he'd say something about it. But we could all settle on something, but some editor would walk in, and it's happened before. Uh, oh, my God, I hate this painting. I don't like it. And we're like, why? You know, Jim liked it. No. And so they'd go tell another boss, the head of editing. And the head of editing had more power than the head of art. You know, and um, uh, and the game designers about like us, they they done the best they could. But I think the people we we had more trouble with than anything were word people, mm-hmm. and they're not visual people. Uh, and that's even when I've illustrated professionally, just in covers, I tried to get in contact with who had the power, because in a lot of big comp- companies, art directors really didn't have a say so. A words person had to say so. When I went to work at TSR, we'd have to do filler illustrations, like you, they, like all your text you know, for a for a module for uh, a game book. We'd run so far down a page, and the, the page would end, but did have a, a two inch space at the bottom. And there'd be gaps, and they want to fill it in with illustration. And so, okay, we could draw a little ink drawing and stick it in there, no problem. Well, we'd get the suggestions for the ink drawings, and here you're going to do a drawing. It's going to go into like a two inch square, okay? Mm-hmm. And they wanted to have an army fighting a dragon in a castle. <laughs> they, you know, it's like, you can't draw that. I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't have a brush that fine or a pen that fine to get the lines in to even draw all that. You know, mm-hmm. an arm fighting a dragon. You know, it's like, you can't ink that in two inches. I mean, you'd be spending a week inking it, you know, a, a 10 by 12 inking or, or a 12 by 18 inch drawing. And it's going to be a filler you just couldn't do it. It was wasn't cost effective, but so we'd argue, and finally Jim Roswell just put his foot down and uh, went to bat for us on it. That stopped. They'd sort of let us do filler art, you know, because that mm-hmm. stuff had to be done quick. You didn't have to spend two days on the ink drawing when you could do a little filler piece in thirty minutes. But, gotcha. But yeah, we always seemed like editors had a lot of say so, and uh, the word the word editors, not your. Uh, Visual editors of any types or like art people and stuff like that. But it was still fun to work with. That's, you know, we, we only get a few squabbles like that, but everybody really got along great. Gotcha. Now, when you did covers for like a, a Forgotten Realms novel or the Dragonlance novels, was that more of a collaboration process between like R.A. Salvatore and Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss? Well, with Margaret and Weiss, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, I, uh, Tracy Hickman was hired. Uh, not very long after I was hired, mm-hmm. uh, a few months, and, and that was in '81. I was in the fall of '81, so in like the winter of of '82, I guess, just after his first year, uh, Tracy had told Harold about this big idea of this story to make a game out of it, make modules, like make like ten modules, and mm-hmm. then the whole story, in the, in the end, could be a set of books. And uh, and Harold, Harold's a great guy too. Harold was a great company man, but he also believed he'd listen to artists, he'd listen to, to writers. He tried to do what was best for the product and best for the company. And uh, so I admired Harold Johnson. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, he uh, 
he and Tracy came over to my house and my, I had a studio in my basement. I worked down there too. I worked in the day and I worked at night. I always did. And, uh, they sat down there until about one in the morning, uh, telling me the epic story of Dragonlance. Of course, it changed some from the rough first, but I loved it. And, uh, and they wanted me to do some like quick rough art pieces that when they present to the board of directors, they'd help sell this idea to the board of directors at TSR. I said, well, the story's great right out. Well, you know, the board of directors should jump on this. It's, it's a great idea. Well, uh, their worry was that Gary, there was only one fantasy world at the time. That was the world of Greyhawk. And Gary got a personal royalty, I think, off the world of Greyhawk. And he's thinking Gary would shoot it down. And they didn't need but one fantasy world. And, and Dragonlance was another fantasy world. Mm-hmm. And it took about three years, two to three years, I think, before we, they finally presented the board and got it to go. It was accepted. But then, uh, Dragonlance, since nobody knew what it was, the first few products didn't make a lot of money. And the book wasn't just being just dropped, it was distributed properly when it came out. And during that time, they tried to kill Dragonlance twice. And Margaret and Tracy, by then, Margaret got hired, um, I was guessing about, the fall of 82 or something like that, maybe somewhere around there. She was um, not too long after Tracy, and she was she she was a writer. And uh, so she, I think Harold, I don't know who matched those two together. I, I never did really know. But anyway, they matched up. One would write, the other one was a storyteller, and the other was a writer. And uh, so they both worked behind the scenes, and I did what I could to uh, for them not to drop Dragonland. And then once they... The biggest problem was was the, the books weren't being, weren't being distributed correctly, and uh, bookstores couldn't get the books. They'd heard of them, but they couldn't get them. So Margaret and the, her boss, uh, I think it was Jean Raby, the head of editing uh, of the, you know, her boss, came up with this little scheme, and they pretended they were bookstore owners and called some book called Random House. They said we can't get these books, and I go, why not? They said, we don't know. People are asking for them, and so. Then all of a sudden, after that, the book started being distributed to the stores, and it started selling overnight. Just bam! And that saved just that there. So a lot of people were fighting behind the scenes, believing Dragonlance to keep it going. And so since I've been, been on from the very start, uh, I was sort of like the art director of Dragonlance. And, uh, and so when it comes to doing the products, I just told all the artists, I said, look, this is, these are recurring characters. We hadn't been doing recurring characters. We've been just doing single images for a cover or something. Because you are the character. You know, if you're playing the game, you are the character. So you can envision your character like we did or like you wanted to. But since Dragonlance had real characters, and all of us are going to paint them on, and Keith worked really close with me too on this, uh, I said, we're going to, whoever paints certain characters first, because we all had to do a calendar, a Dragonlance calendar. So we all start to work on the calendar. And so I went around to everybody. I said, you check with Margaret and Tracy when you do a, a cover, uh, you know, do one of your paintings, Dragonlance paintings, and, and, and see what these people might be wearing and um, get as much information as you can. I, I gave them some because I knew a lot about it. I, I tell them. And I said, so what we'll do is if you do, like, Tesselhoff first, then wh- whoever does even the next time, look at the first one and, and put the same outfit because we don't have models. We can put the same exact faces, but we can put the same outfits like Batman, Superman. You know, you got different actors, but they got the same costume. And so that's the route we decided to go. And uh, some of the artists did it really well, and some just 
wasn't really into dragon lamps or I think I had a passion for it. A lot of people there had a passion for dragon lamps. Keith and I both did for sure. Mm-hmm. And um and uh so we really tried to set some kind of standard so people could recognize the characters. That's the best we could do. And uh and I was lucky to get through those covers. Um uh and I found out over the years that some of the people higher up wanted me to do certain covers, and, and I'm thankful for that, too. I, I didn't know it. I always thought it was just pure luck, but um, it was a fun time, i tell you that much. <laughs> now, one of the other things that you became famous for at TSR was your work in Dragon Magazine, uh, specifically with Snarf Quest. Yeah. Uh, for the people out there who might not have heard of Snarf Quest, uh, what's a, a good brief synopsis of, of what snarf quest is it's a fantasy world with um, humans and dragons it could be like a, a D world it's a fantasy mm-hmm. world it's got dragons monsters and stuff in it and but you've got a lot of um, races i didn't really name you know, very many but there's races of, of critters i call them of beings that are intelligent and they sort of like humans and as far as their goals or desires and everything. Uh, and they work with humans on a regular basis uh, or against humans, either way. But there's a lot of interesting... It's like you're traveling across the land for the first time. You've never left your little community your whole life. And, you know, and you're looking like the year uh, a thousand, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, But it's a fantasy a year of a thousand or nine hundred. And uh, you wander around from your little village, start running into things you didn't know exist, but they talk, and, and you can work together and do things. And Snarf was a made-up character uh, from a, a type of little critters that lived in little villages and really functioned more like humans. They just looked different. They were probably about three foot tall, uh, or a little bit over maybe, some of them. And, and, um, and so that made it fun for me because around every corner in my story, never know what he's going to run into. I'd like to make up other things, and, uh, just whatever. And it was just an exciting, action-packed comedy uh, strip that continued from 81 to like 80 or 82, I guess it started, maybe, up until I quit in 88, I guess. Um, that's when I quit TSR and, and uh, was freelancing full-time. I just didn't have time to do it. But I loved it. I enjoyed doing it, and it seemed to write itself. And the funny stuff, a lot of the funny stuff came from my real life, uh, from things that my grandparents and older people told me to happen to them when they were young, did something stupid, and the outcomes. Some of it came from playing D&D, what happens when you play when you don't know what you're doing, you're a low-level character, do stupid things. Uh, but it seemed to write itself, and I got a huge following just overnight. And... Uh, and when I drew a girl in there, usually there was always a sexy barbarian girl or everything, you know, because mm. I love painting, drawing women. And uh, and it was, it, and I, when I look back later, years later, it was my, I was snarf and I didn't know it. Um, if you know the whole story of it, you know, he, he left his village to seek his fortune and fame. And if you, whoever got the most fortune and fame, they could be the king, the next king. So snarf decides he's going to go try. He had, wasn't experienced in anything. He just had the courage to take off. Mm-hmm. And through the process, dumb blind luck, and, and constantly trying and not giving up. By the end of the book, he had become, by the end of the whole that series, he had actually become king. Uh, 
out of dumb blind luck. And then he realized that being a king was too much responsibility, and he he didn't like it, so he went adventuring again. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, at that time, it had a huge leadership. It was very popular. I enjoyed doing it. And um, what started, I before I went to work at TSR, I had a friend, we talked about making up these little fantasy worlds with critters in them, types, you know, different uh, and humans and different things. And um, I've been thinking of a fantasy world. I wanted mine to be more comedy. I didn't want to be a serious story. I wanted to be comedy. But, and so I was trying to get a character, a type of character that would live in this world. Well, in 79, I think it was, I did a cover, black cover for heavy metal. And it was some little aliens talking to this, that landed in a fantasy world. Little, like a maiden at a pool getting water and it. And she's sitting there looking at them and smiling because they were cute little characters. They looked like almost dogs, almost, in their little mm-hmm. space suits and stuff. And I thought, that's sort of like what I want my main character to be in my in my little world. But that's not him yet. Well, I think the same year, I got to do a cover for uh, uh, TSR wanted me to do a cover for a calendar. That was the first thing I did for them. I think it's for the 79 calendar. And... Uh, so I did a painting. They said, yeah, he paid me in 30 days. I think it was $300. I couldn't imagine making that much money. This is before I went to work there. So I did the, the painting, sent it to them. They loved it, but I didn't get paid. The 30 days went by, 60 days go by, 90 days goes by. And this happened to me a couple of times before in other situations. So I'd always have results if I'd sit down and illustrate a letter. And so I illustrated the letter. Uh, and in the final scene the way the little story went, it was about a four-page letter. The scene ended up as sort of a, uh, a little uh, funny uh, depiction of the scene I painted for the calendar. And uh, so I mailed it in. Well, I got a check like the next week. And uh, and then when I went to work there, Kim Mohan, which was the uh, editor of Dragon Magazine, he comes in, and I've been working about a month or two, and he comes in and he said, man, we're going to publish that letter. I said, the one I sent you ought to get, get paid? He said, yeah. He said, I want to publish it. I said, man, I said, that don't look good on your part. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, they published it. I forgot what Dragon Magazine's number it was. It came out in probably 81 or something. And then not too long after that, he walked into, the, all the artists were working there, he walked into the room and he said, we're, going to, we're wanting a new strip in the back of Dragon Magazine and we're going to open it worldwide. Anybody can send us five pages. And we're going to pick the best of what when we get out of the world. He said, and so, and I said, well, he said, you all can do it too. And I thought about my little world, my little fantasy world. I've been wanting to do that, didn't have an opportunity. And uh, the first question I asked, I said, if we submit the ones that work here, does TSR own the rights to our world, that we are our strip? He goes, no. With Dragon Magazine, like when you do the covers, it was I own the rights to my paintings on the cover of Dragon Magazine. They only bought first rights. They didn't do like TSR. TSR owned all the rights to your paintings. But Dragon Magazine worked differently. They didn't. So that means I owned the rights to all the world. So I went home and did five pages. And I took the lead character in that letter I sent them to get paid. Again, was was a snarf-looking character. Mm-hmm. But I still didn't like him yet. And so when I was doing the strip, I actually sat down one night do a lot of drawings he came up with this little character that was smart I made him a little hard to draw so he couldn't be ripped off so easily and I've seen people try to copy him and I can tell real quickly that 
it's a copy, it's not mine. Because I did do certain things that made it a little bit difficult for anybody to sit down and just draw real quick. And uh, so he started publishing it, and man, it went it went great. It, that little character has made me a lot of money over the period of years, which I didn't think it would make anything. But the if you pick up one of the books today, especially the host with all the story in it, all of it, any place you open it up and start reading, and you'll start laughing. I promise you, you'll laugh. It was just it is good. Uh, the only thing I was thinking about when I was doing it is those cartoons I used to love, the Warner Brother cartoons with Bugs Bunny, Donald Duck, Sylvester, the cat, Elmer Fudd, Foghorn, Leghorn. Back when, before those cartoons was edited, the the action and the... And the it was for kids as well as adults. That's mm-hmm. what Snarf was for. I would get edited a few times. Kevin Corn said, you, you got to change this. So you got you can't use that word. So our average reading age is like 14, 12 to 14, and you can't do that. I'm like, okay, so I change it, and uh, so, I, but it was total freedom. I could do about whatever I wanted to with it. It was so much fun, but I didn't have time uh, to. Um, I mean, I did that three pages a month, but when I went freelance, uh, I couldn't do it. I mean, I didn't have the time. I, was, I had to paint more, more paintings. You didn't have a solid salary, so you had to, everything had to count. And of course, too much. I had to quit. So what was it that made you want to leave TSR? Well, the writing was on the wall. The art department always always had spies in every part of TSR. I hate to use the word spies, but people we knew and friends that knew all the workings of the company. A lot of our wives were secretaries. A lot of uh, good friends worked at different parts. We had friends in shipping. We had, we had people like Dave LaForce. Diesel that had been there since he was a teenager, and he knew everybody in the company. I mean, he'd go to Gary's house and play D and D with them before TSR was was founded. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, and so we knew what was going on in the company. We was pretty. I'm sure there's a few things we didn't know about, but the bulk of the stuff we knew. And as the company started getting more profitable, then you they started hiring more business people, and the business people they were hiring because we were legitimate multi-million-dollar corporation now. I just call them suits. They were people that training came from the from the the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the normal corporations, uh, you know, manufacturing companies, or anything else. You know, they weren't people that had been that involved in entertainment industry and how to deal with creative people and how to be creative. And it was okay until these. These people, uh, uh, give me a good example. We had a guy to come in one time, I think back then in the 80s, they were going to pay him like, they pay him like over 100000 a year or something like that to be our um, marketing man, okay? Like, we need a marketing person to help sell D&D. I mean, it was selling, well, I actually told that guy, I said, right now you could put D&D in a brown paper bag and it would sell. It was so hot. But they hired a marketing guy. And they come around and introduced the marketing guy to me at my desk. Brian Bloom did, and he says, our new marketing man, he's going to help us market our games all over the world and stuff. So Kevin walked away, and the marketing guy was standing there. I said, uh, where have you been working? He said, Chicago. I said, you ever play D&D? He goes, no. I said, do you ever want to play D&D? He goes, nah. And I said, do you like fantasy? He goes, no. And I said, well, how in the hell do you think you're going to market our products, and you don't know them, you don't play them, you don't like them? So how are you gonna how are you gonna do that? He said, oh, it's easy, and he just sort of walked away, you know. And um, I think he lasted a few months. We started losing money. At that time, 
uh, other people in the company, a lot of the people, the suits, people that weren't creative, decided it was so easy to make these games, they would go out uh, and make them themselves or have other companies to make them. So he's burning millions of dollars working with advertising companies and other companies uh, in Chicago and places. To, I don't know who dreamed up some of these games, uh, like board games, like a soap opera board game. Uh, it didn't sell any, I think. It, we kept track. We knew how much the product was sold monthly. And there were some products we put out over the whole world within a month, we sold two. It's like, that's bad. When they printed, they were so sure it's going to sell a million. They printed up 100,000 copies, and we sold two worldwide in a month. <laughs> and the next month, we sold three. God bless. And this, this battle, uh, to put it simple, if TSR was a goose that laid golden eggs, and at first, every egg it laid was gold. But as more people found out, and the more money the goose made, then everybody wanted to own the goose. So the creative creativity part of it all was became not important. The whole concept of these games is creativity, fantasy. Well, that's what started to go. I remember one time they uh, in a big company meeting, uh, Mike Cook, he was VP over the creative people, he said, well, from our marketing survey, and this is from that genius marketer they had, that fantasy is dying, so we can't depend on Dungeons & Dragons to, to, to carry it care company we got the first and the other type of games and stuff and this was like an 80 86 or 7 the company was making money hand over fist and we were all consumers of fantasy product we knew it hadn't even peaked yet there's no way i mean fantasy was still it was a wide open world people like mm-hmm. them didn't see that that fantasy means freedom that means free to think and dream of whatever story or game you want to there are no rules so how can something like that go out of style? As you can see today, it's not gone out of style. It's bigger than ever. Not only D&D, but look at your movies. Look at everything. It's it's basically fantasy. It's unreal stuff. And uh, But I put my hand up. I always hated me to ask questions because I was always pissed off about something. And they, so he avoided me. I kept waving my hand. And uh, he finally called on me. I, I said, you know, what's making the book of our money right now? No, for real. What's making the money for this company? He said, Dungeons & Dragons. I said, I forgot. I was mad. I just, I, I, I always spoke up and told the truth. <laughs> well, what we thought was the truth, the whole department, our department and some of the other creative people. And I, I just, I can't remember what I said, but I couldn't, I, I just, I made the point that, you know, fantasy was here to stay and it's not going to disappear overnight. It's not even peaked yet. And they just like, oh, well, Elmore, there you go again, Elmore, just a blabbing. But, You'd have to be blind and have no feelings at all if you could not tell that fantasy was growing in leaps and bounds at that time. Mm-hmm. There still is, but some people just—they're just not in touch. They just—they can't feel it. They just don't know it. And what I don't understand, and what made it us so good, as far as I don't mean good technically, I mean good for TSR, us, the creative people, but the creative people were consumers as well. We were not only painting the covers. We weren't painting a cover for a game we're never going to play or we didn't care about. We played We played the game. And I know I got Keith aside when he first got hired. And he'd been a DM. And, and I played D&D in a little small campaign about three times. And then we had to quit. We was doing it at work. The boss finally made us quit because we was, <laughs> our lunch hours were running well. And uh, so I got Keith. I said, none of these artists right now really played D&D. And I said, you're the young guy here. And you said you'd been a DM. And I said, uh, 
why don't you run us a game? Because they need to know uh, that everything in the game, the, the reality, uh, the weather's important, the terrain is important, everything's important, visual. It's a visual game. I said, you can't just do, at that time, fantasy art was more figures and fog. You know, you just do a foggy background with some figures in front. And, uh, and, and, and a lot of artists, and I've done a little bit of that work. I was popular that way, but after Platean Dias, it's not figures and fog. So I, I, I showed key some of the Western art that was going on at that time. Beautiful painters like McCarthy and some of these that had been the illustrators, but then went out west, started in Western art. Their paintings were selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Gigantic landscapes, seasonal, the weather, and instead of fantasy, it was cowboys and Indians. And so all we do mm-hmm. is we place the, cow- the buffaloes, the Indians, the cowboys, and the horses with dragons and elves and, you know, barbarians. And I said, that whole scene, make it real. And that's what Keith had the same philosophy. And as we started playing the games, everybody, the art changed of some of the others to get more realistic. I mean, not more realistic, but more, the environment was important. You know, you place a setting. Once you've got a good setting painted in, your imagination can create a story and some characters. So and we were consumers of the product. And, um, and we was getting... Big big advertising companies trying to get some of their artists that they ripped. And popular artists at the time, a lot of commercial artists to do it. The paintings, their paintings were great, but it didn't have a soul to it. They were perfect paintings of like a knight fighting a dragon, but it didn't have a soul to it. I don't, you can't explain it. Even the art that wasn't as good as that guy's work, it still had a soul. I mean, the people that like fantasy, that like D&D, you get all this fan art a lot, and some of the art was pretty crude, but you could tell it had a feel. That person did it because they wanted to. And some of it's real slick art. It was done because they were just trying to get a job and make more money. That's it, you know. So it, there's a lot was going on that was people don't know about it and see. Uh, there's feelings there, just floating in the air. I, like one person, a new person coming one time, he said, my God, he said, creativity is so thick in this company you can cut it with a knife and he was right it was from all parts until the goose that laid the golden eggs was laying too many golden eggs then there was a war a war was waged on who owned the goose and during the fighting they killed the goose had to sell out and uh that's what happened it's just greed uh our people that i don't know that happens a lot and and with the creative things you know you have some really good creative people that creates the first movies, the first books, the first games, whatever. It's making so much money, then you get the big power money people coming in. Most of the people at that time, they had no feeling for the product, but they know what to do because there's these old rules and set aside, this is how you make a movie. This is how you do this. And when you're dealing with a certain subject matter, no, you've got to be as creative as, as, as the story is and not follow uh, the same old um, step-by-step rules. And, the, and the, the movies and things that make, became popular that, during those times were breaking new ground. They weren't the same old ripoffs. There weren't any good fantasy movies being made, I mean, as far as dragons and sorcerers and barbarians, but there was movies like Alien, like Star Wars, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. They were breaking a mold. They were different, mm-hmm. and they made a ton of money. Absolutely. But, you know. So following your your exit from TSR, uh What's some of the, the freelance work that you did after that that you would say you're the most proud of? Lord, I don't know. It's all a blur. <laughs> uh, I know right before I quit working at TSR, uh, I, was, I was still freelancing on the side. 
I, I didn't freelance. I, I didn't do any freelance work that was that would compete against a TSR product. That's what they told me when I first come in. They said you can't do anything. You can freelance, but you can't freelance to a competitor. Uh, anything that we're doing, any kind of product that's like ours. I said that makes sense. I won't. I signed an agreement for that. Well, as time went on, they kept they kept up in that agreement, making tougher. You know, a contract. Okay, now I just get to the point where you can't really do anything. And I'm like, look, I'm not competing. And uh, I never did sign any of the other uh, agreements. I would. Uh, they'd all give us these contracts to stay home and read them and bring them back the next day signed. And I wouldn't bring mine in. And you know, I'd say, dog ate it. We didn't have a dog. <laughs> so I lost it, whatever. And eventually they'd forget about it. So I never signed it. But I didn't do any comp- anything competitive. But I kept freelancing. And I started doing work for um, monogram models in Chicago. Aurora models. I did uh, monogram models. I did all kinds of model box covers. Got Jeff some freelance work out of there. And um, uh, I did I did box covers for uh, yeah, Elvira. Remember her, the TV woman that did the late night movies with the long hair? Absolutely. I did, uh, I did uh, her car. It come out to model car kits. I did the box for that with her car and her standing beside it. Uh, I did stuff for Thundercats models. Uh, not Thundercats models. For, uh, yeah, it was. A little bit of Thundercats. Some models for Transformers they were making. Um, they were licensed products. Um, some, some, you know, that puts up the, the helicopter. Was real famous, like blue, uh, blue something. It was like a, a Cobra helicopter. It was a TV show and everything. Blue Thunder. Mm-hmm. And so it was a model car box of that, a uh, model box of that. And I did the covers for Blue Thunder. I think Jeff did a Blue Thunder one too. And for Aurora models, I did a T62, a T55 Soviet tank model box cover and a BMP, which is a Soviet uh, personnel carrier armored. Um, then I got into I did the, the, uh, the all the, the toy packaging for Willow. I started doing more Thundercats. I did some of the toy packaging for Thundercats. Uh, so I was doing everything. And then before TSR got into paperback books, Jim Bain uh, Books started giving me some work, and he started giving it to me regularly. And so, so I was working at home. I had a full time freelance schedule at home, but nothing competed with TSR. I didn't do any gaming art. Of any type or any kind of, uh, and we weren't into publishing through that, not books, up until Dragonlance come out. So I knew when Dragonlance come out, that was the end because I was getting more and more publication work. And so I'd already had probably five covers lined up. And so I had to quit because TSR was going to go under. I thought some of us thought it'd, it'd take three years, but it took five. So it lasted five years. But I thought within three years it's gone. And like, Keith was like me, both he and his wife both worked there, and my wife worked there. So if it goes under or something, it sells or moves, we're done. So the freelancing was my ace in the hole. And so when it come to when they when they published Dragonlance, it knocked me out of the paperback market uh, uh, if I stayed with TSR. So that's when I decided to quit. And Keith did too. He he'd just gotten into the paperback market, and he knew, and he had a I never had an agent, but Keith got an agent in New York, and he was getting some work lined up, and um, and so we both quit. He said, I quit like two months earlier than him. I quit first so I could find us a studio and everything, and then he quit, and I had the studio open and ready to go when he joined me. And uh, so it was just it was out of necessity. I knew the company was going to go under. It got worse. It was getting worse every year. People were being fired. 
in our D and D game first our one of our fighters or one of the one of the players who was killed and next time our cleric got killed and because they got fired. I mean they left the game. We lost we was loose people in our campaign. Nobody was safe. It got scary and uh and it was all all because of fighting over who owned the golden goose. Mm-hmm. And that was it. But uh yeah, so I already had a freelance career lined up and so once once I quit well, what was the weird part? Keith and I quit in our studio, and then TSR called us in. They gave us their whole next year's schedule to go ahead and do it, and they paid us freelance wages. So for the first year, we and we, we signed an agreement we couldn't work on any other competitor game company for a year. Mm-hmm. And and I stayed true to that. I did, and I think the first one I did, I did a shadow run for FOSA. That was like the month that my contract was over with. FOSA called me up and said, uh, I think I must have known about it. A contract. I said, we got a we got a cover. We'd like for you to do a new game called Shadowrun. I said, sure. So we stayed busy. I never, I, you know, here's the lucky part. In my whole career, after I left TSR, I, I always dreaded the day when I would totally run out of work and really be scared. Mm-hmm. And there's a few times I almost ran out of work, but I never fully ran completely out of work. And that's hard to believe, for me to believe. But uh, because it's it's not easy, it's it's rough out there, and now it's even rougher. Oh my God! And with computer generated art, everybody's good, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Larry, as we're as we're winding down on this interview, um, you know, you've mentioned a couple times, uh, you know, digital art kind of makes things easier. Yeah. Who are some of the artists who are still working today who, who do things kind of the, the way that you did oh, them? Well, there's, uh, man, I can't think of all the names right now, but it's some of the old-timers, and there's some new ones. Uh, maybe like uh, uh, Giancola. Is, um, he started doing magic cards. He's a great painter. Mm-hmm. And uh, Boris is still out there doing paintings, and there's other people. Uh, uh, a lot of people that was around when I was are still painting in oils, and there's some new young guys, so many of them, I can't remember all their names, I can't keep up with it, because back when I was around, you only had to know about 10 names. <laughs> now there's hundreds, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of them doing good work. I mean, there's still artists painting with oils doing great work, um, but a lot of publishers don't want to fool with it, unless that artist got a big name, um, mm-hmm. because uh, because what's happened, the collect. I'll say this. Early on in fantasy art, there was no fantasy art collectors. The only collectors there was was people that had a job good enough where they could pay a, uh, $1,500 or $2,000 to get original oil from anybody, you know. And there wasn't that many people that had guts enough to pay $2,000 for original oil painting of fantasy, of dragons. So there wasn't any collectors much to speak of. What collectors there were, uh, if you asked for $3,000, you just priced yourself out of the market because they couldn't afford it. Now, in the last... I'd say 10 years, there is a collector market of millionaires, okay? <laughs> I mean, people, if they want something, they can buy it, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's changed the whole feel. Um, so now I just quit worrying about publishing because publishing, the rates hadn't gone up that much, and they want to do, they want digital because it's easy to fool with. I mean, the, the artist just sends them in a file, and they don't even have to send it off to get it color separated. In. There it is. It's done. Everything's quick and easy. They don't have to worry about sending the oil painting back to an artist or nothing like that. It's just, it's all, it saves them money and time and everything. So I can see why publishers do that. And, and there's plenty of digital artists that can put together really good stuff really quick and do book covers, you know, super fast. Whereas when you're doing with a painting, you know, you're just working on 
an 18 by uh, 24 by 32 oil painting on masonite or illustration board. It's going to take you two weeks at the the best to get finished. And uh, mm-hmm. but you've created you've created a painting, an oil painting that will last for a thousand years. You know, when it's just burnt up or, or waterlogged. Uh, if it's treated halfway decent, the painting will be just as good 300 years from now. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's something that's it's a it's an object that's there forever. And once uh, some of these people who played D and D has grown up now to be filthy rich, and they're like, you know, by hell, I'll just buy some of those original paintings. Well, a lot of these original paintings have already been sold for us artists trying to make a living, but now they're going out buying these paintings up and paying whatever price it takes to get them because the people are oh, like, well, I only paid three thousand dollars. Now this guy's up at ten thousand, fifteen, twenty thousand. My God, sell! You know, and so the the market is the the collectors are getting more collectors. But for a while, there was very few just old school painters still painting. They wouldn't change. They like to paint. They like the smell, they like the feel, they like the texture of painting, the challenge. It's a brush by hand. So our, the old school people, their prices started going up. We're still painting. And uh, these paintings are bought and sold among collectors. Once a, but once a collector, the older paintings will have more value because they were early fantasy paintings. Uh, like TSR and some of those old book covers, presented stuff, my God, so I don't know how much those old paintings. So there is a market there. And uh, so, mm-hmm. so with me, I'm really, at my age, I want to paint for myself, but I keep getting interrupted by people who want me to do paintings for them. And I kept raising my prices, which I thought was too high, and people didn't blink an eye, and I got too much work. And I, so I raised prices higher, and it's not slowed anything down. And, and I'm at the point now where I'm getting really good money for a painting, but I still want to paint my own art, though. And I'm trying to work in some own paintings for myself. I mean, that's what it was all about to begin with. Paint. I love to paint stuff from my mind, not necessarily from somebody else's mind. And when you're illustrating a book cover, sometimes you can get some good ones. There's a lot of freedom. But sometimes you're still illustrating something from someone else's mind, not yours. The, the, the point of view or the scene might be from your mind. But you have to read a book and say, okay, now I've got to find something here that expresses this book. I'd rather do a painting that I just want to do and let you write the book in your mind. A painting that every time you look at it, it wasn't the cover of something, so it's not it's free. So every time you look at it, you can think of a new story. It's not rooted in, in, in a story already. I don't think this makes sense. But I, I get the rambling on, you know, and <laughs> talk about these things. As far as well, about, go ahead. Oh, no, uh, finish your thought there. Oh, I was just thinking uh, about that. I still, in a sense... As you get older, you look at life differently. And it's not that all of a sudden you wake up and you start looking at things differently. It's a slow change. I love it. And you, if you've read, studied, and continue to learn all your life, which I've tried to do, uh, I got interested in quantum physics and, and everything else. I think it's about, I read a lot. Uh, when I paint, I, I, I think I've listened to every documentary that uh, Netflix and all these other things have out there because especially the educational ones and science and stuff I, I listen to all those and, and you start seeing uh, you look at your life and look at the world and see the changes and see you have a better understanding of everything and I, and I really love that I, I, I don't like getting older because of, uh, you can't do everything as much as you used to physically 
But I like getting older because there is a wisdom that come about life. Not that there's some old sage just quoting, you know, metaphors that, that people really last for, but, but just you have a better understanding of life and everything, and, and, and you look at things differently. And it's a shame that, that you don't have this when you're young, but yeah, life's been good to me. Uh, I've had my ups and downs. It's not been easy, but I've really enjoyed the ride, and I'm still riding. I love it. Yeah. I still have hot rods <laughs> and <laughs> Harley, and I've got a, it was a lot scared of the bejesus out of me. <laughs> Makes me feel alive, you know. I still live, uh, I still want excitement in my life and danger. I always have. And for some great reason, I'm still alive and kicking. I'm still pretty good. <laughs> and pain every mm-hmm. day. Larry, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great interview. I, I'm glad that I was able to, to get you to come on the show. Uh, you, you've told lots of great stories, and I I really just, just thank you for agreeing to, to come on the show with me this evening. All right, guys, so uh, once again, thank you to Larry Elmore for, for doing the show. Uh, next week, we are going to have uh, Sandro Luketic of uh, Pixel Opinions on to talk about D&D and video games. He's a friend of Tim from Knights and Nerds. I'm really excited to talk to him. Uh, but until then, everyone, just when you look at the covers of your books, just remember how much hard work went into making that image jump out and capture your imagination. I'll see you next time.